Well, it is good to be here at this point. I need to explain the sermon title before we get there. Before the, the committee let me know that they were ready to make this known to you, I had already settled and given to the church printers the title of the message, Passing the Baton. It is based upon the first illustration that I'm going to give, and you'll see how it pieces together, but I guess it was providential as well. We're going to look at some of the verses that have shaped me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Right after we do what we do every week, we're going to remind each other of the gospel by quoting John 3.16, then join with Christians all over in praying the Lord's Prayer. Let's do that now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these uh, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. John MacArthur ran track in college and was on a four-man relay team. He said they were in a particular meet, and the guy that started off was one of their faster runners, and he had done a great job. They were well in contention when he passed the baton off to the number two person, which was John MacArthur, and he handed the baton to John. John did his best and felt like he did well in running down and getting ready to pass the baton off to the third person. The third person was probably the fastest person in the relay group, and he handed it off to him. The guy took off, and after just a few steps, he just walked into the grassy area in the middle of the track and sat down. So the other three members of the relay team ran out there quickly. Are you injured? What happened? And the guy said, you know, I just decided I don't want to run track anymore. And they looked at him and said, what about the four of us? You were in the middle of a race. What about your school that gave you a scholarship? How, you, how can you disappoint us that way? Well, folks, here we are. Paul is on death row. He has no choice but to pass the baton because he will soon be gone. And it's on his heart who is going to take up the baton, who's going to see that the work goes on. And he has on his heart to pass that baton on to Timothy. Uh, he knows that soon he'll never be able to write another letter to Timothy. Soon Timothy will never have any more time with it. It's going to be truly in his hands. Now, folks, with this analogy of passing the baton on to someone, can I share with you that I believe that in America we're not doing a great job of passing the baton to the next generation. Let me give you some statistics that break my heart. Pew Research in 2020 published their survey, and they found that in 1972, 90% of Americans called themselves Christians. In 2020, 
Only 64% of Americans called themselves Christians. Quite a decline. By the way, 30% in 2020 called themselves one of the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. They had no religion. They're estimating that by 2070, less than half of Americans will call themselves Christians. But another stat that breaks my heart, because I love Britain so, Britain is the one that produced Wesley, Spurgeon, the missionary movement, what a, all the things we cherish, the great hymns. In 1930, Britain had 30% of its population were members of a church. Now, in Britain, to be a member of a church is something that's taken very seriously. So 30% of Britons in 1930 were members of a church. They're projecting in 2025 that that will be 4.3% of Britons are members of a church. It's gone from being a missionary sender to a mission field. Folks, we've got to pass the baton if we're going to see our country, our world, one to Christ. So with that theme in mind, I've got four truths to put before you today, and those truths will be on the screen. We are to pass the baton of God's word from one generation to another in God's strength. We're to pass it in God's strength. And that comes from verse one, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine how probably intimidated Timothy felt? How, what a daunting task. Paul's going to be gone. He can't lean on him anymore. And he's got this task to do. And so where is he going to find the strength? A, a, a man who's normally timid anyway. Where is he going to find the strength? Paul says, you're going to have to do this in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And God has a way of giving us his grace and strength so that we can boldly stand for him. Joseph Tan is one of the great heroes of last century. He was a Baptist pastor, second Baptist of Aradia, Romania, one of the great Christian leaders. In 1977, the communists ordered him to come and stand before him. He knew what they were going to do. He and his wife prayed over it the night before. And when he stood before them, they gave him an ultimatum. You will get a secular job and speak no more about Jesus, or we will either put you in prison or we will kill you. I love his answer. This is what he said. I came here ready to die. If you, you told me you want me to quit preaching, well, I asked God this morning and he told me to keep preaching. If I have to make one of the two of you angry, you or God, I'd rather have you angry at me than God. You need to know that as long as I am free, I will preach the gospel. That's a holy God-given boldness. We don't do it in our strength. You don't just do it in your own weak way. You don't grit your teeth. You do it in his strength. And I'm going to show you something that's going to amaze you. Those of you who are watching us online right now, this is not computer-generated AI fake miracle. I, I, this, is, this is really going to happen. I have here in this hand, and I should have waited. I'm sure it's just an ounce or so. This is a cloth a glove. This Bible here is a good-sized Bible. It weighs a good bit. And in just a moment, you're going to watch this one-ounce glove pick up this heavy Bible. I'll put it right here so you can see it happen with your own eyes. On the count of three... We're going to watch this miracle of the glove pick up the Bible. One, two, three. Nothing happened. Well, wait a minute. I think I know why. 
because this glove was never created to pick up anything on its own. It has to be filled. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And when this glove is filled, it can pick up the Bible. So when you pass the baton on, God's not asking you to pass the baton on in your strength. He's asking you to pass the baton on in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we need to pass the right baton to the next generation. We need to pass the right baton to the next generation. Verse 2 of chapter 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Paul says, now let me tell you what I want you to pass on. I want you to pass on what I taught you. Corson, one of the commentators I read this week, said this. In our educational system, there are a few greater sins than that of plagiarism. Be innovative, creative, and original, our teachers say, which is fine for schoolwork, but not for ministry, because there's no such thing as plagiarism in ministry. Paul told Timothy to take the very things he had heard Paul teach and pass them on to others. Folks, what I want to make sure is I'm passing on to you the truths that are found in this Bible. I I don't hold to any truth that's less than 1900 years old. Much of it's older than that. We need to pass this truth on. I want to pass on what Paul taught and Peter taught and Mark taught and John taught. Um, Harry Ironside, one day, the great pastor in Chicago, had a hipster-looking man just show up in his office, and he was acting cool and said, I just wanted to come meet you because I know you're just like me. You're, one of, you're a truth seeker. We're both truth seekers. And Harry Ironside said, no, you've got that wrong. I'm not a truth seeker. I'm a truth finder. I have already found the truth. My job is to share the truth. Now, there's one more qualification he makes in that passage. He says, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Now, I want to make this clear that makes Christianity different than cults and than than, than false teachers. Everything we believe, we share out in the open. Here you are in church. We're listening to people listening to us on WHKP. We're online. Everything I'm sharing, you can hear every word. There's no secret meeting going, okay, folks, I've got the deep stuff today. Y'all come in and lock the doors because I'm going to share with you something nobody's ever seen. If that ever happens, fire whatever preacher that is because we don't have deep stuff that's not found out in the open in the Bible. Does that make sense? See, the cults do that. We don't. I'll give you an example. When the Mormons knock on your door, they've been taught to try to sound... Like they believe what you believe about Jesus. Do you believe Jesus is the divine son of God? Oh, yes, we believe that Jesus is the divine son of God. And and that's all you will hear until they get you in. And once they get you in, then they tell you their weird stuff. Because what they believe is that you can become just as much a God as Jesus. What man is now, God once was, as a Mormon saying, what God is now, man can be. You can work your way up to God, get a celestial marriage, and you and your celestial bride can be given a planet, and you can populate that planet with souls. You don't find that here. And you don't hear it when they knock on your door. You have to be brought in, and then they tell you they're... They're deep truths which are not found in the scripture. Let me give you one other example. Two weeks ago, I mentioned Bill Gothard. I went to his basic seminar. I never attended his advanced seminar. In fact, I have only found since I've researched it recently that you couldn't just automatically go to that. You had to qualify to go to the advanced teaching. And it is, and in the basic and in the advanced, 
He shared something. I've seen that on his website. He said that a lot of what he taught, he said God gave it to him, and this is the word he used, through rhemas, R-H-E-M-A. That's one of the Greek words for the word. He said, God gave me rhema, special truths that I needed to share with my followers. For instance, one of the things that Gothard taught was that no Christian should listen to music that has drums. That that's of the devil. That if there are drums there, it's going to stir up false desires. And so you can never have drums. So if you've got a CD that has drums, you need to get rid of it. If you're in a church, this is a false church if there are drums in the church. And I think, wait a minute, did he not read Psalm 150? Where it says, praise the Lord with guitars and drums. I mean, lyres and, 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 and drums. So here we're taught to use drums in the Bible, but God gave him special knowledge. And you have to get in to find that truth. Third truth is this. The baton can only be passed from person to person. The baton can only be passed from person to person. What you've heard from me, you give it to faithful men, they'll give it to others. So it's taking the baton and passing it down through generations. Folks, I want to tell you something from the scripture. God has only one way to win the world. He committed the task of bringing people to himself to Christians. If we don't do it, it won't be done. Here's the passage, one of the passages that proves that. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God gave us the ministry of bringing people to become right with him. That's the hands that he put it in. There was an imaginary conversation that I heard someone talk about when Jesus went to heaven after his life and ministry on the earth. The angels were stunned when he left heaven. They were stunned as they watched him live that perfect life and then saw how people reacted to him and watched him die that broke their hearts. Saw him rise again. They'd heard him tell his disciples, tell the world that faith in me will bring forgiveness. And so the angel said, this is amazing. You did what was necessary to bring the world to yourself, to bring people to salvation. What are you going to do to get that message out? He said, I I told my disciples, it's up to them to share it. And then the angel said, well, what if they don't? Do you have a plan B? And in this imaginary conversation, Jesus said, there is no plan B. I gave it to them. That's the only way it gets done. Now, I want you to see something here. In this passage, there are actually four generations mentioned And I will read you the passage, then give you another slide, and we'll work through it. What you have heard from me, that's Paul, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men, that's the third generation, who will teach others also, that's the fourth generation. Put the other one on the screen, and you'll see it. So Paul shared with Timothy, and Timothy shares with faithful people, and then faithful people will teach others. Four generations right there. Last Sunday afternoon, I had the privilege of doing a funeral for Diane Parse, a godly woman, a real prayer warrior. Her sons and their families are faithful at the 915 service, modern service downstairs. I've known them for 30 years. I did Diane's husband's funeral. I did uh, Mead's funeral. I did his father, Arthur's funeral. When I came here in 1992, I had the privilege of meeting Arthur Parse. He was in his 90s. I think he might have been 94. And he invited me to have lunch with him at Carolina Village. 
Now, those of you who hear me preach know that my heroes in the faith are those who lived the first part of the, of, of the last part of the 1800s, the first part of the, of the 1900s. And so I was talking to this man and I said, listen, can, let me ask you a few questions. Did you ever hear R.A. Torrey preach? And he said, I heard him when I was a young man. I said, did you ever hear Harry Ironside? He said, I had Harry Ironside come to my church and do a revival. I wanted to touch him at that moment because I love Harry Ironside so much. I said, did you ever get to meet Donald Barnhouse? He said, Donald Barnhouse asked me to quit my church and go on his staff and I told him no. Here's a godly giant. Here's Arthur, one generation. And then Mead and Diane, and Mead and Diane both loved the Lord. Mead was one of the most intellectual people I've ever met. And uh, boy, he's got three, they've got three boys, and two of them are really intellectual. One of them is on fire. <laughs> David came up here last Sunday and preached. I thought, man, if I ever lose my voice, I just need to call David to come up here and preach. But you, if you sit there and you talk with John or Paul, they just think through everything just like their daddy. Their mama was the prayer warrior that prayed them to love the Lord's like they do. And now they're there faithful in that 915 service, but sitting next to them, folks, are two of their grown children. Two of the boys have their grown children with them. Both of them are due the first part of next, next year. So we are right I know four generations of Parsis who are following the Lord and there will soon be the fifth generation that I'll get to see with my own eyes. And that's how God wants it to be. A book that shaped me was a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. It's a little misleading because he's not putting out a master plan. He studied the master Jesus and said, what was Jesus' plan to reach the world? And what he pointed out was that Jesus would minister to the crowds, but that wasn't his priority. His priority was to take those 12 men and pour his life into them. That if he poured his life into the leaders that the world would follow, then that would be the, the path to seeing the world one to Christ. And it worked. By the time you get to Acts 17, the people in Thessalonica are complaining, these that have turned the world upside down have come here also. So that was his plan. Justin, I've appreciated the time that I've had spending, my, spending with Justin and getting to know him and sharing my heart with him. But when Justin came here, he came as a youth minister and he had the privilege of being mentored by Dave. And one of the things that Dave instilled in him and it showed such fruit in our youth ministry, so many youth ministers concentrate on big events, concerts, big splash things that you do. Dave said, Dave, by the way, was one of the great youth ministers for 20 years here in this country. And Dave said, what he learned in youth ministry was this, that if you want to see lives changed, you get your kids involved in small groups. And then you also find leaders and you pour your life into them yourself. When Justin and I were talking over this principle, he said that during Cole Thomas's senior year, he met with him every week. When he went on to Gardner-Webb, Cole Thomas, during the time he was at Gardner-Webb, started six small groups. He went on to be in the ministry. He is, was a youth minister in a church, and now he's becoming the pastor of a church. And that's because he poured his life into someone who could pass the baton. Number four, fourth principle. The baton needs to be given to faithful people. The baton needs to be given to faithful people. Commit to faithful men. I was involved in two campus ministries in my formative years. 
The first ministry that I was involved in had this as its strategy. They said, if you're going to win a campus, campus go win the ball players, go win the student body president, go for the leaders, and then you'll get the campus. When I went off to college, I got involved with a group called the Navigators, and they had a completely different philosophy. Based on this verse, they said, the only quality we're looking for is someone who will be faithful. They may not be the splashiest person on campus, but if they will show us faithfulness, we will pour our lives in them, and they will be able to to be impacting the world for Christ. Now, here's a verse that backs that up, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and 2. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. See, the thing that puts every Christian on even ground is this. It's not how talented you are. It's not what opportunities you've had. It's how faithful were you. And what God is looking for is people who will be faithful. I think one of the characteristics that I want to see instilled in the next generation, I have a good number of them that I'm dealing with in my classes at Fruitland, is this. I want to be able to encourage the next generation to do something called plodding. P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G. That means you do the menial tasks with enthusiasm. That means you just be faithful at what you're doing. We've got Jan Mulder here. Jan, how many hours a day? Just hold up fingers. How many hours a day do you practice? Three hours a day. He's been doing it a while. I imagine he could take a break. But because he wants to be the best pianist, and he is the best pianist, he puts three hours a day. You can't do what Jan Mulder does without the tediousness of spending three hours in front of a piano becoming the best at what you do. And what we have is we have a generation of people that have been taught the most important thing is that you feel self-fulfilled. That you get some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. And if you don't have a, if you're there working for the post office or you're working for a a plant and you're not getting a warm, fuzzy feeling, quit that and go to art school. Can I tell you this? If you quit that and go to art school, you will starve. (laughs) That's a principle of life. We need to teach them. Because God never meant your job to give you a sense of fulfillment. God meant your job to give you your groceries. And we've got to instill into our culture the need to plod. And those who've been used by God knew how to plod. William Carey, the first missionary in the English language to go to another country, was asked at the end of his life, what is the secret to all you've done? He said, I can plod. There have been more gifted people. But I can plod. Let me tell you what he did in the 42 years he spent in India. He personally baptized 1,400 converts. But he loved India and wanted to see India change for the good. And one of the questions he asked when he looked at India when he got there was this. If Jesus was Lord over India, what would India look like? And when he got there, he saw an uncultivated country that was full of jungles and tigers and snakes and everything else in Jungle Book. Oh, well, y'all didn't get that one, all right. (laughs) But that's what India looked like, just this untamed jungle. So he began to get and print agricultural books. He started a college where they taught agricultural skills so they could reclaim the land and feed their millions of people. Not only that, He was the first person to speak out for humane treatment of lepers. 
Before William Carey, when somebody was found to be a leper, they were either buried alive or burned alive because people feared that contagious disease so. He spoke out against infanticide. In India, with no value of life, if the dad says, I don't want this baby after it's born, and almost always it was after the birth of a little girl, he would say to the mother, just put it out in the alley, let the baby die. And he worked till he saw infanticide outlawed in the country of India. He also saw another horrible practice outlawed. It was called seti. In that country, when a man died, his wife was required to go up on top of a funeral pyre where they have the logs underneath to burn up the body. And she had to voluntarily lay down beside her husband and die in the flames with him. But you've got to understand this. India is a country where most of the marriages were arranged marriages. And there were a bunch of old geezers who had young wives. And these young women were required to lay down next to their old husband and die. He saw that outlawed. He started the first newspaper in an Indian language because he said, if they're going to be free, they've got to know what's going on. But spiritually, he translated the Bible into six different Indian languages from scratch and 20 different translations of the New Testament. Well, you sit here and say, wow, did he just have an unbroken time to do it? No, I want, to I want you to understand this. He had to plod. Because when he arrived in India, the British East India Company would not let him stay under British territory because they didn't want missionaries because they liked controlling the people. And he had to go to Dutch-controlled area, which meant that he couldn't get his money from the mission society back home. So he had to get a secular job managing a Dutch factory. This is while learning the language, learning the culture. Early on, both he, his wife... And his five-year-old son all caught malaria and his five-year-old son died and his wife snapped and went crazy and never recovered. On several occasions, she got a knife and tried to stab him. Uh, she constantly accused him of adultery. He finally came to the point where the only thing he could do during the day while he was at work was to lock her in a bedroom. And he stayed faithful to her till death, but she never recovered her sanity. I mentioned to you that he had all of these translations of the scripture that required learning the language, developing dictionaries so he could take the word and find the right one for the Bible word and put it in their language. He had a devastating fire while all of his dictionaries were burned up. And he just started all over again. So let's get going because he could plod. But lastly, he went seven years before he saw his first person come to Christ. Now, if you were a pioneer missionary doing something nobody in Britain has done, started a mission board, you went there, and every year you wrote back your support letter. Well, I'm here in India. Still nobody, nobody saved. <laughs> One more year, no convert. Wouldn't that get discouraging? But he continued to plod. Can you plod? Things you've heard from me in the presence of witnesses, these commit to faithful people who'll be able to teach others also. That's how you pass the baton. That's our marching orders. Will you pray with me about that? Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will just take these important words from your word and write them on our heart. 
Lord, I pray this won't be just a church where people come and go on Sunday morning, but there will be people who will take your word and pass it on. We need to see our children and grandchildren saved. We need to see our neighbors saved. We need to see those in the workplace saved. We pray for this now and plead for this in Jesus' name. Amen.